Controcast. My name's Kat Boyd. I'm joined with my lovely co-host, David Jameson. How are you? Good to see you in person. <laughs> it is nice to see you in person. Mm-hmm. It is nice. Um, I'm fine. Glad that we are more than halfway through COP26. Yeah, I, I'm not entirely sure where we're at on the on the kind of schedule here, right? So obviously... It finishes next finishes the weekend when do we hear the deal or not deal you mean you don't know (laughs) it does the glasgow agreement yes the glasgow agreement that if it passes will be hailed as the greatest development in in ecological history yeah i mean i think that if we could stop using fossil fuels and simply power the world on Self-congratulation. Well, I was thinking specifically um, selfies, mm-hmm. particularly uh, Nicola Sturgeon's selfies with world leaders. If that could be converted into an energy source, then I think we would be on to a winner. Yeah, the um, the national newspaper. Um, sorry, we're getting invaded by... Uh, My cat. Walter Kitty. Um, the national newspaper, their coverage of the entire event has simply been a sequence of photographs of Nicola Sturgeon with world leaders, each one implying that Scotland will surely soon become an independent country, take its place on the world stage, be an equal among these nations. But, you know, there's an obvious contradiction in this, which is they keep, taking, they keep presenting pictures of, like, Nicola Sturgeon with world leaders as though they're kind of, like, very happy that the Bidens of the world would grace you know, little Scotland with their gigantic persona. Yeah, I mean, I don't really, I don't think that Nicola Sturgeon has necessarily done anything wrong in promoting Scotland as like a nation in waiting. Like, I think all that stuff from the, like the Tories about, you know, Nicola Sturgeon. They're just as silly on the other end. Do you know what I mean? It's just like, it's a piece of nonsense. Like, of course, do you know what I mean? Any leader of a political party is going to be talking in the language and ideology of their political party. Yeah. Anyone who wasn't using this as some kind of political opportunity would be a bad politician. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it is, apart from anything else, her job to build things like business links between, uh, between Scotland and Germany and the United States. And she loves to do it. Yeah. And she's good at it. Do you know what I mean for that type of politics? Um, although, I mean, today that picture of her AOC and the can of iron brew has really just tipped me over the edge. Yeah, because but that's an interesting one because AOC doesn't really have any power, right? So it's not like when she's meeting Biden or when she's meeting some bureaucrat from Brussels. AOC doesn't isn't bringing any kind of like office into that situation. Just left cover. Left cover, right? Is it's this visage of the kind of transatlantic left. That's purely what Sturgeon wants from that meeting. She's not talking about trade with AOC. She's definitely not talking about you know socialist strategy of how to influence politics in the Western world from the left. She's not interested in that. The only thing she wants from AOC is that photograph. Of course. Um, of course. Which kind of makes you think that AOC should perhaps be a bit more careful about who she's who she's giving that photograph to. I mean, but I have my own critique of AOC, which I'm sure we can get into um, at some point on the show, maybe not today. Um, but yeah, I think AOC has made a number of very questionable judgments. The selfie with Nicola Sturgeon being the least. <laughs> Yeah. The least questionable. That's true. Um, you know, the um her switching position on the vote about um further military aid to Israel um was very questionable indeed. Yeah. And I also think some of her antics around the Capitol Hill uh, protests, riots, insurgency, whatever it's being called now, I thought were um like really, really shocking. Um the thing with Sturgeon that I find interesting with her photograph is like it was a meeting of two nuclear warhead level parasocial relationship type politicians Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right that's such a spectacle these are two people who their basic performance their basic situation in politics is that they suggest things 
to people that never materially arrive. Yeah. You know, so it's it's a kind of beautiful meeting of uh, that type of symbolic politics. Mm. Um, so intense that, do you know what I mean? It's the kind of thing that could just explode and, and you know, create a wormhole or something. Um, but it was, uh, oh, yeah. I mean, look, AOC is not in a position to know that Nicola Sturgeon spent the last week basically endorsing strike breaking in the city. You know what I mean? Where she's just touched down. With the best will in the world, AOC probably doesn't have an international schedule of which leaders. <laughs> yeah, which leaders are okay to get a photo with and. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Of course. Um, but that, I don't think that, I mean, that's not really my objection to it. I just, I, I hate the, the selfie celebrity politician culture. I don't think it's helpful for left-wing politics at all. Obviously not. Obviously not. I mean, uh, my favourite selfie has been that one. Susan Aitken, the greatest leader of our city council in world history met up with um, her Parisian counterpart, yeah. who people could then uh, say, you know, had helped to repress the LOVS movement. And yeah. so both of them had been in conflict <laughs> with, uh, recent conflict with angry people in yellow vests. Yeah, angry predominantly men wearing high-vis. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's wonderful. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, so, but uh, honestly, God bless the bin strike. Yeah. Like, I mean... Obviously, like, I really hope that they are able to get a concession out of the city council, but also it was pretty much the only part of COP26 that felt like there was actually friction between those. With power and without. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the demonstration on Saturday was obviously huge. And do you know what I mean? There was like huge trade union block and, you know, a a vibrancy to it that people seem to really celebrate and really like mm -hmm. but there's there just feels like there's no there's no friction like there's no antagonism like the difference between the inside of cop 26 and the outside is very very fluid do you know what i mean there feels like there's a yeah. kind of the, the barrier between the inside and the outside is perforated i feel like there's a degree of um, people on the inside of the COP event saying, you know, well, you know, my heart is really with the protesters. And that's basically what Nancy Pelosi was saying when she spoke on the um, gender day mm. or whatever it was. She oh, was God. like, you know... There was a finance day and a gender day. <laughs> <laughs> she was like, as we, um, as we say in uh, Congress, you know, what happens inside the house is important. But what really makes the difference is what happens outside, like the big movements. And this is Nancy Pelosi. I mean, you couldn't get That's more of thing, yeah. an establishment figure. That's the thing you've got to say now if you're yeah. like an establishment. I mean, what is Nancy Pelosi? A centre-right politician, yeah. I think it's fair to say. If you're on the centre-right of politics, you need to say real change happens on the streets. Yeah. Yeah, like, that's I mean, the thing you need to say this, now. And this is what I mean about the, the kind of the almost frictionlessness of COP26, of the actual conference and the sort of the alternatives on the outside, is that inside it's full of people saying things like, my heart is with the protesters. Mm -hmm. And the outside is full of, you know, the, the NGO world saying, well, you know, we've got to be pragmatic. We've got to, like, build these things together. Do you know what I mean? And that's, and that's not to say that there aren't any elements of um, like anger or militancy. There are, but it's, it's, a, it's a spectrum. And those elements are definitely at the, the edges. Yeah, one thing that I said when I actually I was thinking about it when I came over here, because in the West End, it's covered in posters from various groups relating to COP26. But one thing I noticed was, because I've heard people say, um, well, this is kind of a, this is like the G8, although look where it's come to at this point. The language is much more radical. Do you know, it's uh, it's much more about capitalism and all this kind of stuff. But I was looking at all these posters that say things like "Act now because it's too late." It's one we've discussed. Uh, blah 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 was the kind of slogan that Greta Thunberg was putting about, um, and a bunch of others. But when I looked at these, these posters all came from NGOs. They weren't from protest groups as such. And they'd all been designed to look like they'd come from protest groups. So really what I think has happened is 
like one of the things that I've taken away from the protest culture around this particular movement is that it's quite highly professionalized. Mm. It's quite well ensconced into the kind of NGO scene. Um, in fact, I wonder if the sorts of people who were leading protests in 2008, sorry, 2005, at the G8 in Scotland, I wonder if they are now in a position where they control some of the local branches of these NGOs, stuff mm. like that, right? Mm. I mean, they're probably aged to the point where they can, where they can do that. Um, but I have to say, like, I, the overwhelming feeling I got from being on both demonstrations was an enormous sense of deja vu like overwhelming like there were points where I was having that proper like Proust's Madeleine thing do you know what I mean where I was uh or that kind of yeah that actual deja vu feeling where you feel transported to a different time it just felt a lot like the kind of protest movements that were around circa 2005 2006 mm. and I dare say before at the turn of the century with the kind of anti-globalization movement whatever you want to call it um that uh, I mean, see, the difference, though, with the anti-globalisation movement is that, well, we're, we're now at the point where, like, the argument about globalisation has been lost on the left and won by the right, mm. I would say. Um, and the anti-globalisation movement, like, of the early 2000s, there was friction. Mm. There was actually, do you know what I mean? There was, there was a high degree of militancy. And it might have been from, you know, maybe like small, smaller, organized militant groups, but there were definitely like moments of, I mean, there was battles on the street. Yeah. Like famously, you know, Seattle, Genoa. Yeah. These types of movements where you, there was actually like a significant friction between the like protectors of state power and officialdom and those who were resisting it and all of that has gone in nearly every single movement and where there have been those like fractious movements have emerged around climate change it has emerged in a, in a way that's quite messy and ugly and um, you know that's not this kind of protest chic mm -hmm. and it's not homemade placards has emerged well I mean the best example I can think of is the Gilets Jaunes mm -hmm. like where there has been friction I mean that's probably the most um, militant end of a kind of environment or green movement that's happened in Europe I can't think of another one mm. where there's actually been and of course they were kind of uh they were a movement against certain environmental measures to it at least initially well, and then they broadened anyway, out yeah yeah um no it, yeah it, i think that's just really interesting that we've gone through this entire political cycle from 2000 when the left was protesting against globalization to 2021 in the meantime the consensus around globalization has broken down the left hasn't been the beneficiaries and you still don't hear really what i would consider proper anti-globalization arguments on the environmental left so much Right, so degrowth is very abstract, right, as a concept. But if you were to make that concrete, right, if you were to make a concrete kind of program of environmental economics, what would it look like? I think one of the first things it would look like would be renationalization of supply chains, supply chains, local supply chains, local productive capacity, yeah. um, state investment for local production, whether that be like industrial or it be agricultural or whatever. Um, like those would be the obvious things that you would call for, but you don't so much hear that. You do sometimes that like you get that from wonks and <laughs> stuff, right? But you don't see it as a major demand on the streets to say global like supply chains of the type that we have right now. It's not a very good slogan. I don't mean that, right? But a global supply chains, global supply chains of the type we have now, they are unstable, they're fragile. We've seen that in recent years. Yeah. They don't produce good jobs or good pay, no. right? They they create very exploitative conditions and they're not sustainable. Yeah, part of the I think part of the problem here is the way that the left lost the argument about globalization and what's happened to the organized left since then is that when you put forward anti-globalization arguments, there is a tendency for you know people to say that you sound like uh you know, you sound all right. 
yeah, yeah. put forward these arguments about like um, state control or um, which is strange because they're just the basic social democratic arguments absolutely, and ideas. Yeah. Absolutely, and like they are also they're also popular. Do I mean they're popular ideas? Mm -hmm. Like if you can like the we we were talking earlier on tonight about the polling data that's just come out from Jacobin that they've done with YouGov, mm -hmm. and it shows how um basically it shows the working class preference voting preference is for uh, what they call populist progressives which really shouldn't be a surprise to yeah to many folk um but the you know the kind of identitarian progressives and identitarian moderates don't fare very well at all mm -hmm. and that's why i think like those those sorts of solutions about like um state control over key industries and um, renationalizing supply chains and um, job creation like that has to form part of like a populist progressive manifesto obviously and the working class have to be encouraged to pursue it with self-interest do you know what i mean like the these are things that people would vote for because they are in it's in their interest in their direct interest yeah. to do so and in a sense, like we're once again in one of these situations where in some ways we're very lucky, right, that a global crisis for international supply lines has coincided with a widespread discussion about environmental destruction as a product, one product of that system. And that dovetails perfectly with, with what socialists typically demand in terms of skilled, you know, better paid jobs, more local autonomy, more local democracy, um you know like <laughs> industries to be based here where we live uh, that we can control and so on so like the argument's sitting right there waiting for someone someone to take it up but it doesn't look like at the moment it's the left that um that that is taking that up and it, it seems like uh, a very kind of wasted opportunity yeah no i couldn't agree more i couldn't agree more um i also one of the things that is very much like that uh, turn of the century, as you put it, like any globalization movement or make poverty history, basically the, the bonoization of protest movements that is definitely apparent in COP26 is all the weird theater around it. Mm. Like I've seen some videos of like protest performance, which chill me to my core. <laughs> There's a lot of that. There's a lot of people dressed up as bumblebees and stuff. Yeah. I mean, there was one video I saw, which was a procession of women um, dressed in, like, what can only be described as sacks. Mm. Dressed in, like, hessian sacks. Yeah. And um, with some, like, hats and some coloured, I don't know, accessories or whatever. And it was, they were, like, in a procession and they were chanting about a grief for a felled tree oh yeah yeah, yeah yeah um like what i want in that moment is like i want i want to know where's the where are the nets where is the where is the intervention do you know what i mean like, where are these people that susan aiken says are running around trash in the city yeah, yeah. That's, i want them to be intervening on that um no, I did see that. Do you know, like, around the whole XR thing, right, there's a lot of that kind of pantomime and all that kind of thesp stuff going on, some of which I have to say, right, I do think looks quite cool, right? So do you know the people, they look like they've just stepped off of, like, the stage of Macbeth. But... No. See if this is the red cloak. People, no, I hate that shit, man. It's I think so it looks fucking... stark. I think it's naff. As a, as a protest tactic, I think it's naff. I think it looks cool in general. I also, because you were saying about that poster that has the skeleton on it holding the, the egg timer thing, right? And it says whatever that horrible slogan is. The, the act now before it's too late. He's not holding an egg timer. What's he doing? The skeleton, I think, is sitting on an egg timer. The skeleton is holding an Isher puzzle, like an unsolvable square puzzle. <laughs> it's even more hopeless. It's, it's more brutal, isn't it? Because I checked it out the other day. I'm gonna, um, I do think it looks cool though. It reminds yeah. me of, um, do you know the, uh, the, well, people say it's the first trade union. I don't know that it is in Britain. It's the Tall Puddle Mars. Yeah. 
I always like love their banner and it's um it's really mysterious it's like it was a so they they are their trade union was like a cult a lot of early trade unions were like that you know guilds that were like that and they met in a loft I think and this is like uh they were like rural laborers and it was a big banner but it just had a skeleton skeleton on it and it says know thine end on the top of it and I suppose the message was like you'd better fight for yourself because you know it's part of like English working class consciousness emerged with not with atheism but um what did they call it um it's like a it's like a version of Christianity where it's very close to atheism basically mm. it doesn't believe that there's a a monotheistic god who's like a person it's mm -hmm. just like it's almost like you worship the universe or something anyway the message of this banner is like you're gonna have to fight for yourself because you're gonna be dead soon right but that's, there's an urgency there it's like make, yeah. make the most of your life type yeah. thing so i think it looks cool but what i would say is do you know whenever i see that stuff i think to myself because i've heard people say oh it attracts people to the protest it makes more people watch what we're doing and stuff like that and it's like it's getting one gets people want to be kind of like more involved in it. No way is that true. I actually watched there was um a guy from that Joe platform, you know, they do like sport and news. Oh, and, yeah, yeah. and he um he went around interviewing people in Glasgow and everyone's just like, it looks fucking nuts. Really? Yeah, I haven't seen that. Like they were just saying, What is this even about? It looks completely crazy. But the people who were actually on the protest were having a whale of a time because they're all kind of thesp types. Yeah. The people who are dressed up as bumblebees and stuff. So it did make me wonder who it's really for. Well, of course. Yeah. I mean, I probably do sound like a real grumpy old killjoy with this stuff. I just, I just don't, I don't think that like dressing up in rags and crying for trees that have been chopped down is necessarily going to win people to your cause. Certainly not. Certainly, and do you know, there's this kind of like Lord of the Rings, Game of Thrones kind of like, they love to have this weird liturgy. Like in that video we're watching where they're carrying along that dead tree, they're also talking all kinds of mad shit about open the gates to your city and all yeah, this kind of stuff. Yeah. They love, they're so invested in this kind of like folkloric, do you know what I mean? Like invented you set up you know this kind of like they're always trying to like develop these mythologies and all this. there's a big you know larp kind of element to all this i mean it's a bit dungeons, it's and, a dragons. Bit dungeons and dragons yeah. yeah of course recent article on jacobin about <laughs> dungeons and dragons do you know what i was going to say about that i was going to tweet about that until i thought better of it was um do you remember there was a big controversy about two years ago when jacobin published uh an obituary to Alexander Limonov, who was like um, a Russian Nazbol, a Russian like national Bolshevik. Um, no, it's, I know. Jacobin, Jacobin published, it might still be up. Um, they published uh, an obituary to Alexander Limonov, who was a Russian nationalist. I mean, they, I think the argument in the obituary was kind of like, he wasn't really a Nazi. He was just pretentious. These are the people who um, have like... That's what they say about you, David. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, their flag was like a red flag with a white circle and a black hammer and circle, yeah, right? So like, I think he was an artist and stuff. And these people, they were crazy. Like they were all on drugs and in orgies and shit, right? But um, they were Again, just... that's what people say about you. But... Uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, anyway, they published this obituary, and I think the argument in the obituary was uh, sort of like, oh, this is just what, you know, people offering resistance to, to the decline of, like, Russian capitalism after the fall of the Soviet Union. This is just one of the mad things that, it, you know, that it threw up, and we should see it for what it was, and etc. Anyway, I, it's not the kind of article you would have thought Jacobin would have published, but uh, I, I was considering saying when I saw the, the Dungeons and Dragons article, you know, I defended Jacobin over this. <laughs> Alexander Limonov, but this is too far. This is this is too reactionary. Like, uh, no, Dungeons and Dragons, it's a nightmare. Actually, I was talking to you about this because a former colleague of mine posted something on social media from, a, <laughs> from some kind of like TV channel that she watches, right? 
it's and, just people playing it. And it's just people yeah. playing Dungeons and Dragons. And they're not like um they're not like total freaks. I mean, they kind of are, they're adults playing Dungeons and Dragons, but it was like uh they were like quite kind of sexy TV people, right? And uh, you know, like uh, like attractive women and and guys and stuff, and they're all sitting there. I mean, they're getting paid to do it, obviously, right? But they seemed into it genuinely, playing Dungeons and Dragons. And I was just, I can't believe people are watching this. But the Twitter account for this channel had like a million followers. I mean, I know people who play Dungeons and Dragons. I've never, I just does genuinely without you know bringing in my tendency to be culturally snobby. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't appeal to me at all. I don't like I, I, it doesn't have the the aggressive competitive element that I thrive in when it comes to board games. I like I lo- like like Monopoly. Like I fucking hate all these like left have you seen this left wing Monopoly the Jacobins brought out? The failing Jacobin. <laughs> they brought out a left wing version of Monopoly. Um no the Monopoly is like is supposed to be shitty and hard. Yeah. The only way you can win is like fucking everyone over. That's what's enjoyable about it. They should have brought up a, brought out a Donald Trump version of Monopoly. Um, but that is the idea, right? Like you want to be the, the scumbag on well, top of the well, hill at the end. My top tip for winning at Monopoly is, and I mean this genuinely, like I'm not doing a bit, is that you always volunteer to go the banker mm-hmm. and then you just steal money out of the tree. I think that's actually the only way to win. Yeah. Is that you just keep stealing like five hundreds? Um so yeah, I I uh I don't I don't understand. I can't I don't think I've played a board game in twenty years. Uh it makes I I, I do really like playing I like parlor games. Mm-hmm. Like I like dominoes. That sort of thing. There's a certain quiet dignity to dominoes that doesn't come along with you being in Dungeons and Dragons and deciding you're a dragon or a wizard or something <laughs> and having to role play your way through yeah, all these just, bizarre scenarios yeah. that you come up with. Yeah. But like I know people who seem to get a lot of a lot of enjoyment out of it, but it's just never it's never appealed to me. Um yeah, but in any case, that is now a huge industry, which is I think is what this kind of Jacobin article was about about how capitalism takes everything, any kind of like pure, untouched human joy and commodifies it into something shit, right? But I don't know, man. I think Dungeons and Dragons is pretty sinister from the start. Um, on the topic of, I don't know, surreal, surreal performer of role play, can we please talk about Little Lamel? <laughs> have, you, have you been following her sinister progress around the world? Because you know she just hasn't turned up in Glasgow. No, I know, I know, I know. Right. But I only became aware of it for listeners who might not be aware of Little Amel. Little Amel is an 11 and a half foot animatronic puppet, which is supposed to represent a girl refugee from Syria who has been going through towns and villages across Europe and replicating the trick and has now arrived in Glasgow. Yeah. That's right. And and I suppose it's supposed to be drawing attention to the plight of refugees in Europe. However, she's absolutely terrifying. I'm gonna like the um the Wikipedia entry for a little amount brought me quite a lot of joy last night, right? Mm-hmm. So this, it was obviously started by like um, uh, a puppet company. Yeah. Um, it's got this excellent line, right? It says, um, <clears throat> eh, the puppet was carried during five months from the Syria-Turkey border via Europe to the United Kingdom and walked and took part in locally arranged events in 65 towns and cities along the way. Little Amal was greeted at some venues by local dignitaries such as Pope Francis, and Caroline McIntosh, Maid of Barnsley. <laughs> I like that. I did see her with, yeah. with um, Wee Frankie, as I call Pope Francis, oh. as, as his close friends. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I just I really like the idea of the Pope being a local dignitary. Yeah, it's yeah. very Alan Partridge. Yeah, no, it is. 
that's a yeah. good wee script there um but no she she's she has this kind of like uh, kind of shiny dead face and it's quite terrifying. I dare say it's even more terrifying if she's looming over you trying to shake your hand. As she was on Gender Day. <laughs> was she? Yeah. Oh, she, she made an appearance at Gender I've seen Day. this. And she's looming there. She's, she's looming there, <laughs> like behind the speaker. Like, and then she she gives the speaker a hug. So it's this like huge monster yeah. like, coming down to like hug this woman. Terrifying. Like, but this is the thing, right? on a serious point is that she's appearing you know to represent the journey of the refugee and all this stuff right which you know i'm sure the motives behind it are are good but what's happened is that it's become completely fucking depoliticized so she's appearing at an event with people like nancy pelosi mm-hmm who were all in favor of interventions within the middle east that led to some of the disruption in Syria. In fact, like Pelosi, Barack Obama, who's been sworn in and the United Nations backed the uh, Timber Sycamore project, which was a CIA project to back um, Syrian fighters. And inevitably the CIA armed- Islamic State and Al-Nusra and stuff, yeah, yeah. Now, Barack Obama signed that deal he signed that deal. Mm-hmm. And then, do you know what I mean? And then they're all like celebrating a little amount. Yeah. And, and, and by the way, this happens just as the refugee crisis is ticking up again. So right now, as we speak on the, Polar, uh, on the border of Poland and Belarus, uh, there's a standoff between thousands of refugees, mostly from the Middle East, and Polish police. And almost certainly as well, because this is what happened during the last refugee crisis. Um, Like paramilitaries, like far-right paramilitaries, right? Who stalk the forests of these border areas, trying to stop refugees entering into the free movement zone, right? This is European. European European free movement uh, is a a colour line. And you're free to move if you're a white European. And uh, if you are a Middle Easterner or suspected of being such, not so much. So they are there on the border of Europe now. So, yeah, no, it's the same situation. I'm a dare say little Amal is not. At, so Angela Merkel and Joe Biden are saying that these refugees are only there because it's all Putin's conspiracy. Once again, right? Putin is, Putin. They're calling it politically organized migration mm. or something. So they are funneling these migrants into the EU to attack the West, right? Such a dangerous thing to be saying, by the way. By the way, to portray refugees from the Middle East fleeing into Europe as an attack on the West is itself, like, I mean, vicious um, sloganizing, right? And, you know, it's like, it's not like a fucking trust Putin or Lukashenko not to be looking out for their own interests in all this. Um, but it's just another, it's also another ludicrous conspiracy theory getting churned out by people like Biden and Merkel. Merkel, let's not forget, by the way, said Greta Thunberg was a Russian agent. Did she? Mer- Merkel blamed the Fridays for Future in Germany on Putin. Did she? People I did forget. Not know that. I did not. People that forget. Excellent. <laughs> people forget how much um, uh, has been blamed on Russia, including stuff like this, which is just totally vanilla. I mean, uh, well, you could do a great little graphic of that, by the way, of like Greta imagine as the final Russian doll out of Putin. Nice. You could get a job doing the front page of The Spectator. Yeah, <laughs> that's the kind of thing they'd do. Um, so, uh, yeah, so the refugee crisis is on as we speak. And I dare say, if she gets near them, little Amal will be hugging Merkel and Joe Biden. Well, I mean, totally. This is what happens when you make all politics about like, you know, um, moralism is that you depoliticize the question of like movement of people. And I don't doubt that, no, I know that part of the conflict in Syria was exacerbated by climate change. But to then like completely ignore the role that imperial that intervention, we, yeah. That like, well, Obama's government. Um, 
uh, like and his supporters and the Democrats, like the, their role in backing those CIA programs is just fucking disingenuous. Yeah, yeah, totally. At best, yeah, at best. Though I mean, like, I dare say the people who are puppeteering for Lamal will say, and you know what, from their point of view, maybe they have a point. All they care about this point is, is you know, um, creating a kind of mood of sympathy in the public for refugees, given that there's probably going to be another refugee crisis. Fair enough, but the rest of us have to maintain a degree of cynicism, frankly, about that yeah, situation. The, the thing is, like, you have to, in order to properly have solidarity with refugees, I think there has to be a degree of, like, understanding why people are leaving, yeah. right? And that that can't be done through moral blackmail, like simply by using like a, a child, the same way that you can't um, like galvanize like the majority of people in the country, like the working class, you can't um, get them behind climate demands simply by saying, won't someone think of the children? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? We have to be saying, not won't someone think of like who is the who's the least attractive figure that we can think of in this situation? Like so, what like say a Syrian man trying to like we have to like have as much solidarity with a Syrian man who's trying to enter the West. Do you remember that was a whole that. bit of it? As, as a wee girl, do you remember people kept saying, "If these refugees are so desperate, how comes I don't see any families here? How how comes it's all young men?" Yeah. So exactly, exactly. It doesn't really help. Do you know what I mean? It, 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 it's a bonoization. Again, this mm. is all like, it's the same, it's the same trend. Um, do you know what I mean? It's the same way that like, there's loads of like stuff around Glasgow, which is like very, won't someone think of the children about climate crisis. And yeah, it's young people that have a big price to pay. But we also do have to address the questions like, well, how do you have like any type of just transition? Like what happens to oil workers? Yeah. During what happens to Grangemouth? What happens to these places where people work in fairly highly paid jobs at the moment? How do how do you switch them over? Like, and yeah, like mean, I, it's not as a, it's not as um, it's not it's not as kind of appealing. It's, it's not as moralistically yeah. appealing. It's much more complicated. It's much more, it's kind of more of a grey like. I, it's like it, okay so during the fridays for future protest that i said was giving me huge uh like recall mm. by the way some of which by the way i can't blame on anyone but myself there was a huge like wacky trotskyist contingent who wouldn't speak to me right and uh do you know what i mean there were some odd scruffy looking young guys selling newspapers now that that's my own fault that I've got flashback, you know what I mean? Like Vietnam style for that. Yeah, I wish um, that those sorts of Trotskyist groups had their own giant puppets. Of like Trotsky or something. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. No, that'd be cool. I, I want to shake, I want to shake giant Trotsky's hand. Not, yeah. not Trotsky, but it would be like you know, like their leaders. Oh yeah, yeah. Giants. Their particular so sect have, leaders. Have, like, a, 11 and a half foot animatronic Peter Taff <laughs> battling God. an 11 and a half foot animatronic. What's your one, Tony Cliff? <laughs> Anyone <laughs> normal be, listening to this, we've just lost. I know. Yeah. I know this I'm is sorry. worse than Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> but see, well, actually, Trotsky let, and Dragons. Let's be honest, right? Yeah. The reason that neither of us play Dungeons and Dragons, we've done our both, own version. We've both been in Trotskyist organizations. Yeah. It's so. the left. I mean, that's our own thing. We became the, more shameful. Um, the dungeon master of our own sect. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds genuinely sinister. Um, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. That that would have been interesting and haunting. Um, but anyway, um, but when it was down at that, um, God, the the horror of that idea has has shocked out of me. What I was going to say. Sorry, they wouldn't they wouldn't speak to you. These Trotskyist groups um, and it brought back all your bad memories. Yeah, but there was something else. Ah, crap. I can't remember it. Um, <sighs> no, nah, I've lost it. You did tell me that you encountered lots of uh, mad religious people as well. 
Yeah, no, I um speaking of the Pope, um, there was a really interesting like Calvinist cult there. Mm. Um do you know I was thinking about that though? Like no one would object to me calling them a cult, but honestly, there was other stuff going on down there. Trotskyism and um, some forms of environmentalism, which could easily just as just as well fill that kind of uh, that description. But um, they seem to have come from mostly London, from their accents, as far as I could tell. And they were handing out free books, not just free pamphlets. I got I got a few free books about the Pope and how the Pope was behind COP twenty six. Pope twenty six. Um, and I feel like I want to do like a Pope puppet wordplay. Yeah. Hope it? No, it doesn't, it doesn't really work. Um, so but got your free books. I got my free books and they explained some stuff to me about um, how the Pope was behind COP26. Uh, apparently, I didn't know this, but the event in Scotland is co-hosted by Italy. So there you go. I did not know this. Yeah. That, that's, that's evidence enough. To get that kind of information, you need to go to the Calvinists. Mm. Um, and they were saying this is because ultimately, yeah, the Pope's behind it and behind the Pope. Well, the Pope is the Antichrist, but behind the Antichrist, the devil, presumably. And uh, yeah, it's all part of um, the devil's plan to bring about one world government, et cetera, et cetera. Um, which is as plausible as many other things that I've heard about COP26 in the last, in the last few weeks. Uh, so yeah, no, but you know, they were quite charming. The thing about religious cults is it's not going to be like the Trotskys didn't want to speak to me, which is not good proselytism, by the way, right? You should have been ramming your propaganda down my throat. The religious, on the other hand, were perfectly happy to speak to me, and they were more than prepared to give me free literature, uh, all of which is absolutely fascinating. So my my what I would say to today's Trotskyists is you should learn from the most dedicated religious cultists. The um some of the vegans, right? So they were they were they had kind of placards that said things like uh, uh we need a plant-based recovery for the planet and you know meat equals heat. So, you know, not the most inventive, um, but it but it does rhyme. Um they they weren't as appealing, but they were very friendly. They were handing out free lentils. I mean, that's just charming. Um, it's a cliche, but it wasn't one I was complaining about because it's free food, you know. Like, was it just like just lentils, or was it like flavored? Oh yeah, yeah, it was lentil gloop. Oh, le gloop. Le gloop, but uh, I I actually did turn it down in the end out of um, sanitary concerns. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. Um, because as you know, I'm a bit of a kind of germaphobe. But um, and and I, this is wrong, but this is terrible, right? Um, but whenever I took literature from a Trotskyist, an environmentalist, or a Calvinist, I instantly used my antibacterial gel, and that's not a thing I do with like in my day to day life. I don't want people to think that every time I handle cash or something, I'm like, oh, people have touched this, right? It's just it's those three particular groups. Uh, yeah, there was something that made me feel. Yeah. There might be a, a slight uncleanliness. The religious, the hippies, and the trots. Yeah, three groups of people who, from personal experience, which could be wrong, aren't terribly hygienic. <laughs> <laughs> um, Sometimes when you get the Venn diagram crossover, like where you get like the religious hippies, like they, yeah. get, they get really crusty. Yeah. Um, and like, oh, I mean, like, get, like, kind like, of like Quakers. Like, I shouldn't say that. Like, Christian anarchists. Oh like yeah. Those types of people. They're all. Like, Someone who describes you as describes themselves as a Christian anarchist is very likely to offer you homemade hummus, but you'd be worried about consuming that as well. Yeah, yeah. Or a suspect falafel. Yeah. I like the Quakers. I like the Quakers. I no, the Quakers don't belong in there. Quakers. Um, are much more respectable than that. Yeah. And they do things like the like homemade bacon. I think like most of the mainstream religions are fine. Like yeah. I, would, I would wouldn't feel the need for like hand sanitizing. But like yeah. when it starts getting a bit fringe. Yeah, when when the people start being a bit wild eyed. Yeah. Um do you know though like I'm I'm slagging these people off. There was a part of me Honestly, when I was there talking to these members of this cult, and when I say a cult, I mean, it was really, really out there, right? But part of me did think, like, 
I, 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 I thought I was walking away from the protest and I thought maybe I should ask one of these guys if they want to go up and see the statue of John Knox, which is just down the road from there, right? And we could chat about John Knox. And then I thought, I bet they wouldn't let that happen. Because it was, so when I say cult, it was one of those ones where they won't let them fraternize with people outside, mm-hmm. right? Um, because that's how people get deprogrammed, is just contact with other people. Um, but I did think it did make me a bit like genuinely sad because what sorts of people join a cult like that? It's people who they need that overwhelming sense of authority in their lives. And mm. you know what I mean? Because they've been destabilized in their lives in some ways, overwhelming. That's the sorts of people who, who become addicted to the cult life. Um, I mean, I can absolutely see the appeal. Yeah. Like I like, I do like the idea of like some degree of um, submission for want of a better word, to, like, a higher authority. Oh, definitely, yeah. Like, I absolutely see the appeal in that. It emotionally simplifies your life a lot. Oh, completely. Um, and, it, and it, you know, you there's always an authority you can go to to answer your questions. Hmm. Um, and, you know, like, people sometimes go too far when they describe, like, small left-wing sex as being, like, cults. Like, every form of human social relationship, I think, is on a cultic spectrum, right? I mean... It's the same ingredients in a cult, by the way, that you get in a family unit or a group of friends, just intensified, right? Um, and, and quite formally kind of organized. But, you know, a small left-wing sect like that provides its members with the same thing, like an ultimate source of authority, a body of works that you can go to and read and study and reproduce um, that solves all the difficult and and anxiety causing problems mm. in a wider view uh, of of the world i mean there's a there's a there's a certain logic there like, I, mean, I think the one thing that like distinguishes the cult like from those other types of situations so like whether that is being in like a left-wing organization or a family or friendship group is to do with the consequences when you leave yeah like that's actually that's the game changer is that if you step away from the herd, that you are then shunned, mm-hmm. that you're then outcast. Like, and that does happen in some political organizations. Yeah, only in the very crazy end. Yeah, on the on the fringes, yeah. but it does happen. Yeah. Um, but that doesn't tend to happen in other social circumstances. That's true. It did used to happen, of course, in, in the Catholic Church. I mean excommunicated excommunication i know people who were kicked out and I, when you say excommunication you always think it's for like some kind of uh grand heresy yeah 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 you always think it's like uh what were some of the heresies like arianism and stuff like that gnosticism um but no i mean i think um that you know i mean in the 50s women used to get kicked out of the church because they cheated on their husbands yeah. and stuff like that right so it's there used to be a lot more of that but I suppose, I don't know. I mean, you know, this is like a famously vexed question among academics who study cults is it's almost impossible to define because almost any list of attributes would also apply to a major world religion. Um, So, yeah, no, no, it's, uh, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't, you know, shake hands with a Buddhist and then feel the desperate need to to wash my hands. Though one thing that did occur to me on the march was um i actually felt quite safe from covid despite it being very packed because is i can't why is that well i just sort of thought these people have a strong natural immunity it's all the lentils yeah but i was also it's thinking about your sort of low hygiene <laughs> 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 yeah I mean, but turmeric uh if people don't know and are listening to this it's a natural cure for covid19 I have to stress it's not a natural cure for COVID-19 because if I say that on here, we'll probably end up getting like banned from YouTube or something. Yeah, yeah, probably. Uh, uh, anyway, right. Take Bill Gates's <laughs> vaccine. I think that, and maybe this is me just dipping my toe into this conversation at the moment, but I think that we do have to talk about the class composition of those marches on Friday and Saturday. Mm-hmm. Like, I think that those marches were predominantly middle class. 
I think that's fair to say that. Mm-hmm. And it's um, and it's, that's not uncommon. And it's and it's also not it's also like not a criticism or a judgment. I just think that that has to be said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, and you know, and not entirely. It needs to be said as well. But but we're talking in generalities, and of course, I mean. The, both the protests I were on, they didn't even just, I mean, to say middle class is kind of to miss the point almost because it's not even, it's more subcultural than that. Mm. It's very particular parts yeah. of the middle class. Yeah. It's like I said, though, like I could, I could really identify. Do you know, I, I got again as well, we've talked about it a few times now, right? But the opening, you know, 20 or 30 pages of that book, The End of the End of History, where it describes a certain type of like western sort of lower middle class i don't know what you would call it passing right and just reading and and their culture and their cultural expectations and their cultural experience and reading that and again getting that very kind of creepy kind of deja vu feeling right one of the things that that demonstration did to me it was a bit of a an ego shrinker because i remember being on that demo and thinking <laughs> you know as you get older you realize how much of a cliche you are and when you're younger you tend to think like there's something special about you or something like that so it was another one of those kind of nodal points where i was like christ there really is a whole layer of people in society who are just like me who have very similar cultural experiences who come from very similar parts of the general population many of whom are probably narcissistic and egotistic in the same way. Like at this point, I'm looking around at all these kind of like 17 year olds and a lot of them probably think they are special in the way that 17 year old me did. Um, And it is just terrifying again, when you realize, no, you really are part of a much more general and widespread force of social reproduction. See, I think that's the difference is I don't find that terrifying. Say terrifying. You know what I mean. I find it. I find it uh, disconcerting slightly. Humbling, humbling. and and, I, yeah. and that can be a good way as yeah. as well as a as well as a challenging kind of way. Um, but like it can make you laugh at yourself a bit more. Well, yeah, it's, 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 it's a total absurdity honestly, to the situation. I think that has to be the key to the secret of life: is just don't take yourself too seriously. Mm. Um. Because there were so many people, honestly, I could have pointed them and said, I could, there were young guys on that march who I could have walked up to and said, you're me. (laughs) (laughs) There's a serious danger that in 15 years time, you're going to be making a podcast, making these same reflections, right? Um, Especially the ones carrying newspapers. Uh, But, but um, no, 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 it was very much made up of, it was very recognisably the middle class left and all its various tribes and, and subsections. Um, people. Uh, <laughs> so, no, I think that's obviously true. Um, but again, to me, it was it was the, the reenactment vibe. Um, you know, people say that there's a special problem in, in attracting, you know, working class people to that type of politics. And I dare say that's true um but as we were just discussing it's because it's not linked up in people's minds with concrete proposals for how people actually live and work and interact in contemporary society which also limits it off from much of the middle class as well incidentally like um but i mean slogans like degrowth and 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 this um apocalyptic thing as we've discussed won't won't do anything i think to build that bridge yeah i mean i also, i do think that there are genuinely aspects of extinction rebellion which are sinister that like there's an article really good article by ken and malik i have not read this in the observer yeah. um where he's ta- he's basically making these points about um how pessimism has infected the left like the kind of the the crisis, like the end is coming. A lot of these points he references. Um, one of the co-founders of Extinction Rebellion, this guy Sir Roger Hallen, 
you think his name is? Yeah, I know him. You know who that is? Yeah. He's done a video which is like advice to young people on the future of the planet. And it's like a two-hour long YouTube video, right? And it is fucking dark shit. It's like um, he's painting this picture of the future where he talks about like one day a gang of young men is going to break into your house demanding food. They will take your mother your girlfriend your sister they will gang rape her oh they will my put cigarettes god out in your eyes that's the consequences of climate change it's fucking dark man so literally the road yeah yeah right. that's what yeah uh yeah and this is but the video is titled like advice to young people or a message to children and young people about the future and i'm just like how the fuck can you say these things no, that is, that's wild. He's wild. <laughs> I've seen him in a few interviews yeah. and he always came, comes across terribly. The thing is, his whole worldview is totally captured by this sense, right? And you get it from some other people doing some of what I would consider the more inadvisable types of climate protests, right? Like lying in front of roads or climbing on trains. And what they always say is, look, there's an absolute moral imperative here. There's an absolute moral imperative, and that overrides everything. It overrides my safety. It overrides, like, PR. It overrides um, popularity. There's an absolute moral imperative to take a stand. And I think a lot of people have decided that, in all seriousness, in 60 or 70 years' time, the only question people will ask about folk in our generation is, what did you do to stop this, right? First of all, as we've already discussed, I don't believe that. I, don't, I, don't, I think this... There's this kind of, uh, there's this weird kind of tautological view of history. Do you know what I mean? Where it's like, they've already decided the outcome of things and we're working backwards. Um, and I think that's nonsense. But also to have that sense of overriding moral imperative. I, I used to use that, by the way. I used to like, when I was first involved in, in kind of left-wing politics, do you know, I used to have that general attitude. I'm so overwhelmingly right about things that no tactic is wrong. Do you know what I mean? That no slogan, no matter how subcultural and off-putting, uh, can be wrong because I'm overwhelmingly right about things. It's a classic thing that young people yeah. think. But a guy, Roger Hallam, who's, what, 65 or something, yeah. should not be going around spouting that stuff. And he seems to be getting worse. Yeah, I mean, this is unhinged. He actually, I think, left XR in order to set up an even more like extreme group, right? Who are involved in even more pointless forms of action. Um, I don't even think there were that many actions in Glasgow. No. There I'm, was that one, like, people blocked the bridge. Yeah. But what else was there? I don't think there was a great deal. Um, but then it's only kind of a hardcore, perhaps, of activists who can afford to travel to a big road show like this. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Though, I mean, as we were saying, like, um, the international character of the yeah. march was very apparent. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, but I, I mean, to be honest, I didn't see any really bad anti-natalist stuff. Uh, despite the, uh, so yeah, no, no, I, I, I think, I think we avoided the worst, the, the worst of that. Um, but yeah, there's, there's still, there's still a, when that, especially when that's the stuff that gets through, because it's the stuff the media wants to highlight. Of course, there's a reason why, like those um, insulate Britain uh, actions, have been seen by so many people, and why LBC keep pushing them around everywhere, right? And all these kinds of outlets. Um, it's because that's very much what they want the population's view of environmental activism to be. Whereas the vast majority of stuff that's been going on in Glasgow over the last couple of weeks has been like somewhat more conventional, I'd suggest. Sorry, I got distracted by looking at Twitter. <laughs> You're part of this generation of people who can't uh, look away from Twitter for more than about 20 minutes. I mean, it says you. I know, it's terrible. Yeah, you love Twitter. It's awful, isn't it? You just can't stop yourself doing big threads. I haven't done a thread in a while, a big thread. My brother pointed out to me recently that I'd done like 30,000 tweets since I set it up about seven or eight years ago. Yeah. 
And then I realized I could actually count if I wanted to. Do you know what I mean? I could count how many that was a day and then break it down into how much time I might have spent on it. How do you find out how many tweets you've done? See, I'd never oh, looked for how it. How many have you done? How many did you say? I've saw about 30,000, I think. How many have you done? Uh, 16,000. So I've done like twice as many as you. <laughs> um but, I, but i've never seen that figure before right and it is like being mm. confronted with this the most ludicrous i mean that is a ludicrous it's amount. like um this is your life for our generation yeah do you know what i mean instead of getting like the red this is your shit life <laughs> this is your life online no <laughs> oh, it's terrible that's terrible um, are we are we done i think so okay done